today. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we're going to read. We have been moving along in the book of Acts, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. Once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, let's all stand together. All right. We might have, you might be seeing something at home with the, the passage on. There you go. We, we might have, we corrected that. All right. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah, the Christ, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, even he believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. All right. Well, it really does give me great pleasure to continue a series that we began last year, that is working through the book of Acts. And Acts, this fifth book of our New Testament, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. This has kind of been our COVID-19 playbook, has it not? Here at Taft Avenue, like we have been, this, we've been in this book as long as we've been at these stay-at-home, these quarantines. And I think for me, it's been this very centering experience to ask the questions like, what did the earliest followers of Jesus, what did they value? What did they see as important? What did they see as significant and central to their faith and following Jesus? What did they see as significant and central in their discipleship? And what were the things that they valued? What were the earliest followers of Jesus valuing, even if they struggled to do so? And we see that kind of struggle in the book of Acts. But what attitudes did they exhibit? Where do we see God at work in their gatherings. And for me, just so you guys know, when I pick up my Bible, one of the things that really drives my reading of the Bible is I'm constantly asking this question, what would this have been like? What would it have looked like? And so as we walk through this and we try to put kind of the hands and feet on this, these passages, we try to fill in some of those, the gaps, hopefully we can see some things that God was saying to them at that time but also to us today. So we're asking this question, what did it look like, these earliest followers of Jesus, 
And not that we're replicating the church in Acts. They've got their issues. There's certain things we don't want to replicate. Like, we don't want to not give food to people because of their ethnicity, which happens in chapter 7. Like, we don't, we, there are certain things we don't want to do, but there are certain things that we do want to follow. And so today, as we come to our passage and we look at how the gospel shows up in a city called Corinth, and also how the gospel shows up in this place that we know of as the marketplace or the Agora, and we're going to take a look at that today. All right, you guys with me? Now, it would not be a message in the book of Acts without what? Maps. You, I was reading your mind, you knew it, and so let's take a look at a map, and so far what we've seen, especially on the second missionary journey, is we've seen Paul start up here in Philippi, and work his way to Thessalonica. He had some problems in Thessalonica, did he not? He had a a few weeks where he was in the synagogue, but then he had some problems, and some people went in all places to the marketplace and stirred things up and caused problems for Paul. He leaves and goes off to Berea. At Berea, they send an entourage from Thessalonica to go cause problems for him in Berea. That's when his traveling party breaks up, and his traveling party, Timothy goes back to Thessalonica, Silas stays in Berea. Paul goes down here to Athens. Last week we looked a little bit about Paul preaching in the Areopagus, this open-air philosophical market of ideas down in Athens, but they're all going to rendezvous here in Corinth. Now, I want to say a couple things about Corinth. Corinth is a really interesting city, and I'm going to zoom in a little bit here. As you can see, Corinth, Corinth is situated on what we call an isthmus. Say that three times fast, at home. Nope, you can't spray anybody. Isthmus, okay? It's, it's on this isthmus. So, it separates mainland Greece from the Peloponnese, okay? From the Peloponnesus, this, this large almost island out here. And Corinth is on this isthmus, and this isthmus is really is an interesting place, especially in the ancient world. Now, if, you, if we go back, I'm going to go back one, one slide here. If you're a merchant in the ancient world, and you had goods, and let's say you, you had a farm, you had uh, farming goods that you are uh, wheat. Let's say you were, tra- you were, you had wheat and you needed to get it to Rome. Okay. And you, you grew it here. You could go on land over here, but the best way to move uh, people and goods in the ancient world was by sea. Now, if you wanted to get it to Rome, you could, and Rome would be over here. You could take the very dangerous journey on a boat and you could, you could for, you could go across the Cape down here. Um, the problem was this Cape down here was called the Cape of Evil. And the Cape of Evil, because there are all these ships that had crashed once they get into open waters as you get out into the the broad Mediterranean, you get out of the Aegean into the Mediterranean before you get into the Adriatic. And so what would happen in the ancient world if you had goods, you would come into this port down here at Centrea. At Centrea, you would then sell your goods and they would be transported across the isthmus to another city, another port on the other side, and then a boat would take them very, on these, all this protected island area and then shoot across to Rome. And what would happen is this isthmus here was only, it's only four miles wide. There's only four miles that separate the Aegean from the Adriatic. And the city right in the middle of these two ports was Corinth. Corinth was a place, a fascinating city, a crazy city in the ancient world. What's interesting about Corinth is because of what it is trade-wise, um, in, in 143, in 143, the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth is destroyed. 
It's kind of taught a lesson by the Romans. And as it's kind of burnt down to the foundations, as it is rebuilt, one interesting thing about this is all the aristocrats, all the families, all the landed families, all the families who had, who had uh, great holdings of land, they were all killed off in the, as Rome was teaching a lesson to Corinth about 100 years earlier, 150 years earlier. But as we get now to this point in time, when the city is rebuilt, it's not rebuilt with the taxes of Rome. It's not rebuilt with the money of, of families who had been around a long time. What it's rebuilt on is it's rebuilt on the wealth of merchants. And what makes this super interesting is, remember how we talked about every city along the way kind of has its own personality? In Philippi, it's all these veterans, and they're all there. It's this very patriotic, uh, veteran-oriented city. Thessalonica, it's a port, a lot of trade, but also it's the capital of the city, so it has this kind of civic-mindedness as well. You get down to Athens, and Athens is what? A philosophical mind center, right? But you get to Corinth. Corinth is ruled, well, here's who, here's who comes to Corinth. Merchants, traders, and sailors. Corinth, Corinth is a place where it's almost like it's the Las Vegas of the ancient world. If Las Vegas had a port, okay, that would be Corinth. And Corinth was a place where it wasn't really the Roman government wasn't in charge, and it wasn't really the temples, it was the merchants, it was money. Money talked in Corinth. It was the one place in the ancient world where you could go, if you came from a, a lower part of society, it, see, in our world today, this idea that if you come from lower classes, you, this idea of building your way and earning some wealth and moving up in the world, this kind of upward mobility, kind of the thing that the United States in a lot of ways has been built on, this idea of upward mobility. One of the things about this is upward mobility was not really an option in the ancient world, except for one place, Corinth. Corinth was a place where you could come from nothing, and through your wit and will and skill and, and your tradesmanship, you could build up fortune. And so Corinth had a reputation as a place where people came to gain their fortune, but it also had a reputation of it's a place where people came to lose their fortune, to gamble on business adventures. And so this quote, I love this quote, um, if we come to this quote, uh, the Roman writer Strabo says, a trip to Corinth is not for every man. A trip to Corinth is not for every man. And there was all kinds of sexual promiscuity and temple prostitution, sailors, merchants, wealth. You can even see in our passage today, later on in the passage, where they like bring these charges and the governors are like, hey, you guys deal with it yourself. And they start beating up Sosthenes. And you're like, what's, and they're like turning their back. It's, it's this very laissez-faire environment. And the Apostle Paul shows up there not entirely knowing what to expect. Corinth is a fascinating city, and, and hopefully at some point we'll be able to go through actually the book of First and Second Corinthians and see how some of the th these things play out. But there's a lot of things to say about the city. I, don't, I can't say everything, but um, one thing I want to help us understand that Paul, Luke, and Acts also help us with, and that is this. 
that the earliest followers of Jesus, one thing that I want to point out about our pastors, lots of things, but one thing that I want to zero in on here is that the earliest followers of Jesus, when we ask the question, what do they value? One thing that we can say is that the earliest followers of Jesus value the marketplace, the agora, the place of buying and selling and trading. We talked last week about all these particular places that the Apostle Paul had this kind of competency and skill to enter into. We talked about he's a Jerusalem-trained rabbi, which gets him into the synagogues. He's a Roman citizen, which gets him be, be able to go before the Roman courts. We also saw that he has some classical training, which allows him to, to engage with the philosophers of the day. But today I want to talk about one more place that Paul was aware of, that Paul was conversant in, and that the earliest followers of Jesus valued, and that is the marketplace. In the ancient world, if you read it in Greek, it's called the agora. And let me just give you a visual of what you might expect of the agora in the ancient world. Actually, I've been to the agora of Corinth. The, the open-air market, and if you visualize this yourself since it is a football day, it's, an agora is about, depending on the size, it's about half the, a half size of a football field. So think about 50-yard line to end zone of a football field. About that wide, about that long, and that is surrounded. It's, it's a place where merchants could come in and bring their wagons in and set up their shop and bring in their goods and, and their food and their whatever they've made and set up in this open-air market, this agora. And around the Agora, imagine this. So it's kind of like a farmer's market of some. Every city would have this place where everybody would come in and set up their shop. But around, you would have these more uh, alcoves that are built into the sides of the Agora that would be shops and, and more significant shopkeepers or places where people would actually do their work, even if they took it out into the Agora to sell it. You would have these little alcoves that surrounded this half-sized football field. And at one point, overlooking this, there would be this platform that's probably about 10, 12, 15 feet high that the, the city uh, magistrates would sit on and overlook everything that was going on in the agora. It's called the bema seat, the judgment seat. And if you had a, a, a gripe with somebody or you had a, a charge against somebody, you would take it to that raised platform and they would speak down to you and they would give their but this is this is the idea you think about this idea an, an open-air market about the size of half a football field with little alcoves on the sides that's the agora that's the marketplace and we find out that that is the place where the apostle paul also is able to go it's a language he speaks he knows how to get there he knows what to do there and the earliest followers of jesus valued that space, these businesses, they valued the marketplace, they valued business. They saw God work in the economy and industries of their day. They engaged with the marketplace, not just in this passage, but I'll point out a few places in the book of Acts where the earliest followers of Jesus are active in the marketplace, are active in the agora, and, and Paul makes it clear, as well as Luke, who's writing Acts, wants to make it clear that this is a place where not only the gospel goes, but also it supports the gospel. And this brings us really, uh, that, and I want to make these, these really these four points. Four points this morning, okay? And that is that the earliest followers of Jesus saw the marketplace as a means of supporting the gospel. And they also saw that the gospel 
was intended to impact the marketplace. At the same time, the marketplace can hit back. And we see that happen in the book of Acts. We see that happen in our lives. The marketplace is a volatile area. It's a place of risk. But that ultimately that God is not unaware of our fears. God is not unaware of the risks that we go through. God is not unaware of the path that Paul has taken so far on this journey that has had so much strife and where he's been beat up and run out of town and and scoffed at. What is he going to do now that he comes to Corinth? What will happen to Paul? And so we had this passage read this morning, and it will be a good starting place, but the surrounding uh, chapters will give us some insight. So here's, here's our first thing, the passage. Look at 18, 1 through 3. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so I want to talk a little bit about this idea of tent makers. You guys with me this morning? Everybody with me at home? You guys are all perked up? Everybody here? Good. Our team is here. Wonderful. It's great to see everybody today. I hope you're excited because I'm going to geek out in a big way on you today. I've already shown you a map, and now I'm going to say a word, skeno poies. Okay, hang on. The tent makers. All right. So this gives us some important information about Paul, namely that he knew a trade and that he was networked with other tradespeople of his trade, and that trade was tent making or skenapoyos. And let me just say a couple things about this. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. The word tent makers is a rare term in the Bible. It's only this, this one place where we find about, out about this in the Bible. And in the ancient world, this term does not occur that often. Um, and there's, so there's been a little bit of discussion about what is it exactly that the Apostle Paul did? What was his trade? Now, early, some of the early church fathers who comment on Paul, they explained that he was, um, that they identified Paul's trade as a maker of bed cushions or a maker of leather bridles or even a maker of shoes. Now, all of those things are made with leather. Um, medieval and Renaissance church tradition described Paul as um, the word, the, the, the word skena poie, skena can also mean a scene. It, it's, all, it's the word for tent, but it's also the word for scene. And so the Renaissance people describe Paul as a scene painter. I think they're projecting a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. Um, although many people believe that Paul and his, because of the, the, the theater of the day was not super uh, pious, that it would be very difficult to imagine that Paul was involved in the theater, the theatrical productions of the day. Um, but modern scholars have, have offered and gone back to this idea that Paul was a leather worker, that um, most scholars hold that a majority of tents, as far as we can tell in the Roman world, were made of leather or animal hide. And so Paul was probably a leather worker. And when we see this term, a tent maker, probably what we would understand is that Paul was a maker of like leather awnings 
Especially if for the Agora. You come into the Agora and you set up shop. You don't set up in the sun, right? You, set, you put up your shade, your leather shading, your whatever it is, awnings, or there's cushions or things like that, that Paul was probably some kind of leather worker. So from his identification of being in the trade of tent making, we conclude that Paul was probably a leather worker making tents and probably other products of leather. <coughs> Excuse me. We might also speculate, and again, this is all we have with this, is that practicing a trade meant that at some point in life, Paul was apprenticed in this trade. That he learned not only how to interpret scriptures as a rabbi, but at some point of his life, probably his younger years, that he would have learned how to work with his hands. And that he would have learned the tools of the trade. And if you were a a leather worker, you would have had, you know, um, uh, curved uh, various awls and various curved knives and things like that, and he probably would have carried these with him. And so when he showed up in a town, he might have been like, hey, I have the tools of the trade, here they are, and that would have given him pass into the trade guild of leather workers of that city. And he would have been able to set up shop in the area of the Agora where the other leather workers would have worked. Now again, we're piecing this together, but this idea that Luke even mentions this is that this would have been part of Paul's custom, that this would have been Paul's way of earning his living. As a matter of fact, Paul seems to consider his working with his hands or his business or his trade as a central part of his work traveling and teachings and even his ethics of preaching the gospel. Like he says, And I'll read a couple of these to you, but elsewhere, Paul will talk about how working with his hands enables him to preach the gospel. He says to the Thessalonians, which from Corinth, he's going to write 1 Thessalonians, and he says to them in 2.9, remember our labor and toil, working night and day so as not to be a burden to you. That he goes on in 2 Thessalonians, he says, With labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. In 1 Corinthians, he makes it clear that when I came to town, I wanted to give you the gospel free of charge. I didn't want you to think that that salvation cost money, that you had to support me. So I received a gift from Macedonia, probably from Philippi and Thessalonica. He received a gift to support him, but he also worked with his hands. In a farewell speech in chapter 20 of Acts to the Ephesians, he says, You know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord that he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul, not only how he gets the gospel out, But his ethics of preaching the gospel, that we didn't want you to make you think that the gospel cost you money. So we showed up in town and we were amply supplied from other churches, but also from our own trade. And as we look at this, we think about this idea that the business was a central part of Paul's discipleship as well as his ministry of preaching the gospel. Paul saw that his business trade was a central part of his following Jesus and his discipleship. It proved a strategic asset, 
as we've talked about, we, we talk about these various languages, that Paul is not only a gifted and skilled rabbi trained in Jerusalem, and that not only is he able to, his Roman citizenship and, and his philosophical understanding, but he's also a skilled tradesman. And that because of this, he would have had immediate access when he entered into a town. Think about this. You come into a town, you're a stranger, and he has immediate access to two places, the synagogue and the marketplace. The synagogue and the marketplace. And those two places are probably the most significant places for the preaching of the gospel and for ministry in the mission of Paul and what he's doing the synagogue, and the marketplace. What's interesting is that we might think, okay, this is, this is somewhat novel, but if we actually read literature from the ancient world, what we find out is that the marketplace was actually a place that was notable for having really good, deep philosophical conversations during the week. So Paul would actually preach on at the synagogue on a Saturday, the Sabbath, but then during the week, he'd be like, hey, if you want to talk to me during the week, I'll be down in the Agora. And the mark, you can come, come into my shop, we'll talk. Come into, come into my shop, we'll talk. And so while I'm working with leather, we can have this conversation about the Messiah and, did the, and, and all these things that go with it. We could talk about atonement theory. We could talk theology. We could talk politics. We could talk about lots of things. That's what the Agora was known as. Not only did it produce goods, but it was also a place for conversation, significant conversation, meaningful conversation, while they were doing their work. So Paul saw his business, his trade, as an essential part of his ministry. Look at one of these things, one of these passages. Um, it says this. Look at what it says in verse in 18. It says that he reasoned in the Sabbath. This is 18.4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Greeks and Jews. And so we found that Paul has been separated from his traveling companions, right? So they're up in Macedonia, northern Greece. Timothy's in Thessalonica. Silas is in Berea. Paul is now down in Corinth where he's working. He's working on, the, and this is what it says, that he goes in the, the synagogue excuse me, every Sabbath, but... When Silas and Timothy arrived, that Paul was occupied with the word. Now, what that, that word occupied with the word, and I think the New American Standard translates it this way, that Paul when, when Paul, when Silas and Timothy arrived, that Paul devoted himself entirely to the word. And what this implies is that while Paul is alone in the city, that he works, he, he preaches on Saturday and works the other six days of the week. But when Silas and Timothy arrive, what does Paul do? He ceases, he, he has other people to do the heavy lifting of the business. And so now he devotes himself entirely to the word. And this gives you a little bit of an idea about what this entourage is doing. That what, what is Timothy there for? What is Silas there for? Yes, they're there to help in ministry, but they're also there to do to help in the work of the trade that the business that's supporting them, now you have Silas, now you have Timothy, it frees Paul up to go and devote himself entirely to have conversations in the marketplace without having to work with leather, to go into the synagogue without having to worry about the business. And so what, 
what sort of picture do we get of the earliest spread of the gospel? A group of believers come into town. They use their business and religious training in order to gain access into various circles of the city. Paul, a Jerusalem-trained rabbi, immediate synagogue access. Paul, an apprentice leather worker, gains immediate access to the local guild. He sets up shop, and he carries on business during the week, teaches on the Saturdays, and his entourage helps in this process. This is what the, this is what the earliest followers of Jesus do as they go from city to city preaching the gospel. That's what that mission is about. I think it's fascinating. Now, it's not the only way it's done in the ancient world. There's lots of other ways it's done. For Paul, he thinks that this is, this is what he feels like is a good way of doing ministry through their own business. And also to say that Paul does receive support from other places, but he does it with also a business. So Paul has support coming in, a business running, as well as Sabbath preaching. All right. Let's take a look at a couple of other, couple other things about this. Um, and that is, I guess there's a couple of things I want to say about the marketplace and what these connections want to, are about and what they do, what, what he's saying about this. And, and here's the first thing, and I also want us to reflect even on our own, how do we engage in the marketplace? Some of you guys are students out there. Some of you are retired. You might not be as involved in the marketplace, although really scripturally you're still working. There's always good work that God puts before us. Um, that, that God will, will put in our pathway. But as we work, as we put our, our hand to something in the marketplace, to reflect a little bit on how that relates to our discipleship. And we've talked about that in, in the, when God is revealing what creation is like in the first three chapters of Genesis, in chapter two of Genesis, God gives the man, Adam, work to do, and that work comes before the fall. That work is not something that comes after, after the fall, work is cursed, like there's, there's toil with it, right? And you're like, you don't have to tell me that twice. But this idea that work is not bad, work is, that God-honoring work is something that's inherent in our humanity. I think it's one of the things why this pandemic can be so difficult for so many people is that it has disrupted work. For some people, it's taken work away. It's, and when you take work away, it takes away part of your humanity. There's something inherent in our humanity that is, is about work and that we can understand why maybe our discipleship is also tied to the thing that we put our hand to as vocation or career. So let me say a couple things about this as we work through. The first point that I want to make, I'm going to have a little sip of water here. Thank you. First point that I want to make is this. When we read the book of Acts and the earliest followers of Jesus, they note this, that the marketplace supports the preaching of the gospel. That is that the money that Paul makes in the marketplace and is on and Silas and Timothy that he makes in the marketplace that they put towards, they do it so that they are able to live and feed themselves and preach and travel, that the marketplace supports the gospel. Business earns income. That income allows Paul and his companions to live and work out their vocation as disciples. Now, here's just a little bit of a, a little roll call in the book of Acts about places where we see this happen in the book of Acts. Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, they sell property in the Agora, 
in order to support the needs of the church. Tabitha in chapter 9, who's raised from the dead, she is noted as a maker of tunics and garments that she sells and then uses the proceeds to give to those who are in need. The, the agora, the marketplace, supports the gospel. Lydia in Philippi is noted as a seller of purple cloth. Simon the Tanner in Joppa doesn't earn his nickname because his dad's name is Tanner. He's a tanner. He, he works in the tanning guild. Aquila and Priscilla, who are from Rome, in this passage, they sell leather awnings, tents, they host the Apostle Paul. So the marketplace supports the gospel, and the presence of Christians in the marketplace promotes industry. We're going to see that not only tents and travel, but also um, one of the industries of the ancient world that the, the earliest followers of Jesus almost take over is letter writing. You think, oh, well, you just go buy, you know, a ream of paper at Staples and some pens. You couldn't do that in the ancient world. You had to have specialized industry of people who had papyrus, knew how to make papyrus paper, who had the tools and, and things of letter writing. They were called amanuensoi. They were amanuensis. And you would hire an amanuensis to, write, to draft a letter for you. That this is something that we see among Christians, that the Apostle Paul is doing his work remotely of pastoring churches through letter writing, supporting an industry, building an industry. But there are also other industries that the gospel doesn't support in the marketplace. And we all know this, right? And that the gospel impacts the marketplace. Not only is the marketplace supporting the gospel, but the gospel impacts the marketplace. That there are a few examples of the gospel impacting the marketplace so much so that it disrupts the industry and economy of a whole city. We saw it in Acts chapter 16 where the healing of the slave girl, the demon goes out as do the hopes of prophets. And because of that, it stirs up problems for the disciples, but they disrupt an industry because they free a girl of demonic oppression. It gets them in trouble and it disrupts an industry. You think about if you could free people of demonic oppression in our society, of addiction, of oppression, what sort of industries would that disrupt? Think about a supply side of, of, of drugs and addiction. If, if, if people could be healed, if the church was part of healing people from addiction and oppression and, and sex trafficking and human trafficking, can you imagine what would happen if the church disrupted these industries? People's lives would be changed, but people would come after the church. Would they not? You think about that, but this is the call. You think this is today, what do we do? I mean, we're in this, we're in a society where there are these industries that we don't agree with. What if we, rather than protesting the industry, what if we created a, a, a demand problem for those industries? Which is what Paul does. We're going to get to it when he gets to Ephesus. He, he tanks the idol making industry in Ephesus. He preaches the gospel so much and he's so anti idol that all the metal workers get together and say, what the heck's happening around here? Nobody's wanting our idols anymore. When the gospel shows up, there are certain industries that will thrive. There, were, there should be certain industries that will tank, and not because the Christians are protesting, but because the Christians are delivering people. They're providing hope 
for the crisis pregnancy. You think about getting rid of abortion in our, in our country. What if there was so much hope in our world that people wouldn't even think about taking their baby out of it, that they would be joyful that they are giving birth to a baby that's going to be loved and supported by a community of people? When the gospel shows up, it affects the marketplace. It impacts the marketplace. And this is not just about, look, we, we have our, I, we want to pray and we want to read our Bibles and we want to do this, but the truth is our God, the gospel affects not only our interior world, but also our hands in the marketplace. And we don't want to forget that. And I don't want, I'm not, this is not about guilt, but it's about thinking about how does God have my discipleship alongside my work? What would that do in our community if I was known as a believer in the work that I do? All right, I'm getting kind of worked up, getting pumped up here, okay? We need to move on to another point, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll bring it down now. All right, the gospel impacts the marketplace. The marketplace, um, it, I'm sorry, um, how did we start? We started with, thank you. I'm going to go back. The marketplace supports the gospel. The gospel impacts the marketplace. But the marketplace does hit back. Besides Christians promoting industry, buying into various industries, I should say this, as much as the earliest followers of Jesus value the marketplace and the impact of the marketplace, they see that the marketplace can be an unforgiving place. The agora of the ancient world, if you read about the agora of the ancient world, this half, like we said, the football size, half football size field, it's filled with, it's actually, it's not only filled with merchants and traders, but it's also filled with people looking for work, day laborers, people that um, might not, they, they might not live week to week or month to month or year to year with their income. They live day to day with their income. And when that income doesn't come in day to day, these people are hungry. These people are malcontent. They are easily stirred up. And we see it in the book of Acts that when people have an issue, they go into the marketplace and they stir up a crowd. The marketplace was a volatile place in the ancient world. Bread is scarce. There's a down economy. The marketplace was the epicenter of unrest. Paul had come off a string of bad marketplace receptions. In Philippi, the people in the marketplace make up charges against them and they get beaten with rods. That's going to leave a mark. They leave the next day. In Thessalonica, they preach, but then what do they do? The, the Jews of the synagogue, they stir up the rabble of the marketplace and they, they bring charges against Jason, right? And Jason's got to pay a big fine in order to get out. And then Paul and Silas and Timothy are sent away by night. Not a good reception. In Berea, a mob was agitated by those coming from Thessalonica. People are coming from different places to cause Paul trouble. In Athens, Paul goes into the marketplace to begin teaching, and they call him a babbler. And then he comes to Corinth. A trip to Corinth is not for every man, <laughs> right? What is going to happen to Paul? He's 0 for 4 in the Agora on this trip. 
and it does not look promising. The city does not have a good reputation. He even says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I don't, if you piece, piece this together, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, when he first came to them, he came in weakness and fear and trembling. This passage in the book of Acts, in Acts 18, Paul is on a string of 0 for 4 in the marketplace. And he comes to this city, and with this horrible reputation, he's like, what is going to happen to me? And it's interesting because even in this place, what we find is that even after this string of bad receptions, there's an important verse that happens. And it happens in verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. I'm going to just put this up here. Do not be afraid. Some translations say, do not be afraid any longer. And why does Jesus say to Paul, don't be afraid? Why does anyone say, don't be afraid to anybody? Because he was afraid. (laughs) You know, you always think that Paul's this like super guy and he's going to show up and he's like, sure, beat me up, I don't care. Look, he's afraid. He's come off this string of failures, failure, failure. He goes to the intellectual part of the, the intellectual capital of the known world, failure. And he comes to Corinth and he's like, what the heck is going on? What's going to happen to me? And all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he says, hey, Paul, I don't want you to be afraid anymore. This is an important city to me. I mean, listen to what he says. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you and harm you for now, is 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 the idea. I have many in this city who are my people. I think just think back, think about this. Think about how assuring this would be. I'm going to go back. Because the marketplace is a place where it can, it can be good for us in our ministry. It can also hit back in our ministry. I mean, I don't know how many of you might have lost a business deal or a sale because of your faith, because of how outspoken you might be about your faith. It can hit back. The amount of time that maybe you say, it's more important for me to spend time with my family and not spend time overtime at work. Like, how much might that have cost you a promotion or something like that? Like, biblical values might hurt in the marketplace. And here's Paul who's literally gotten beaten up in the marketplace, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, Paul, I know, this is, I know this is a hard place, but I don't want you to be afraid here. Something special is going to happen here. I got many people in this city. You haven't seen them yet, but as you preach the gospel, they will show up. I got people here, and I need you to preach the gospel. I need you to preach the gospel because people's lives will be changed. And I need you to do this because people's lives will be changed and it will be, and then you're going to write two letters to these people and then they're going to be important and 2,000 years later, other people are going to read these letters and be encouraged by them. Like, I can't tell you everything that's going to happen, but you have to not be afraid. Something special is going to happen here and I will be with you. I will be with you. Man, the marketplace has its share of fears today. Might not be riots and rabble-rousers. 
but it has its own set of fears. And I suppose we need to hear the same. We need to hear this. We might not have the the same promise as the Apostle Paul has that, hey, no one's going to harm you. I got news for you. We're in a, a place where we might have to pay a little bit of a price to preach the gospel in the marketplace. There's no promises. For Paul, this was a specific promise, but the promises that are enduring Go on speaking, I am with you. That's not just a promise for Paul. It's a promise for you, that's a promise for me. I have many people in this city who are my people. You don't know them yet, but what it's going to take is you to preach the gospel for you to get to know them. That's true for us as well. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I need you to speak. I need you to proclaim my name. I've got many people in this city. Two decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, men and women are traveling, proclaiming about his resurrection, his identity as Messiah, King, Savior of the world, doing so out of a business front of a leather worker shop in a marketplace in Corinth. And we are not the same today because of it. We want people also to look back 50, 100 years from now and think, look, because of that church, what was that name again? Taft Avenue, Evangelical Free Church of Orange, whatever. They love Jesus, but because of what they did, my grandparents heard the gospel. My parents heard the gospel. I heard the gospel change the course of my family, change the course of the direction I was going, and now God is at work because of what we're doing here today with anticipation that God is going to continue this work on, just as we are continuing on a work that began before we got here. And we stand in that line, a work that at some point passed through an alcove at the edge of the Agora in Corinth. And now we continue that on in our own work and vocation. When we pray, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Father, we are so grateful that you would tell us, don't be afraid. And certainly we want to take our fears, even right now, what our apprehensions are, our anxieties, our fears, maybe about the marketplace or the economy or politics or whatever it is, we just want to lay it before you. We want to confess to you these things are on our mind. We are concerned about our work. Maybe we're grateful for our work. Maybe you've blessed us in that. We just want to say thank you for that. Maybe we're a a little on edge about our work. We lay that before you. Father, we also just take this moment to invite you in to our work. I don't know, maybe you've had a hard time inviting Jesus into your work or seeing how your faith in Jesus interacts with your work, but let's just take a moment, just take a moment and invite Jesus into your work. Jesus, would you come into our daily activities? Would you give us just a sense of that you are with us in that? And show us, Jesus, just how we can proclaim the goodness of who you are in our workplace. Father, we love you. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit. We offer this morning to you. We offer this day to you. 
It is your day. You deserve all praise and glory on this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.